Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Everybody and welcome. You have tuned into episode number 167 of Linux in the Ham Shack. I am your host, Russ K5TUX. Yes, I'm still K5TUX. Across from me, we have Cheryl, who's going to say hi. Hello, everyone. Oh, you're supposed to say hi. Hi. Okay, there you go. And then we have out in Greeley, Colorado, uh, Rich KD0RG. Hello, everybody. <laughs> we were talking trucker slang before the show. That may come up in segment seven. All righty then. Maybe it won't. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Wow. Wow. I think we broke rich. <laughs> okay. Oh. So yes, you did. <laughs> so since you're still recovering, you can handle the first story in our uh, amateur radio topics for the evening. You know, we're recording this on April 18th, which is World Amateur Radio Day. Every April 18th, radio amateurs worldwide take to the airwaves, airwaves in celebration of World Amateur Radio Day. It was on this day in 1925 that the International Amateur Radio Union was formed in Paris. Amateur radio experimenters were the first to discover that the shortwave spectrum could support worldwide propagation. In the rush to use these shorter wavelengths... Amateur radio was in grave danger of being pushed aside. Amateur radio pioneers met in Paris in 1925 and created the IARU to support amateur radio worldwide. Just two years later, at the International Radio Telegraph Conference, amateur radio gained the allocations still recognized today, 160, 80, 40, 20, and 10 meters. From the 25 countries that formed the IARU in 1925, the IARU has grown to include 160 member societies. The International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, has recognized the IARU as representing the interests of amateur radio. Today, amateur radio is more popular than ever with over 3 million licensed operators. World Amateur Radio Day is the day when IARU member societies can show our capabilities to the public and enjoy global friendship with other radio amateurs worldwide. Sweet. Did you know that was today? I did not know that was today until I read the story, so I'm glad it was there. there well, and it's global friendship, it. too. So. I, I pulled that straight from the IARU's uh, website. I, you know, it was uh, there were other things here and there. The thing that struck me about the article, in, in all of that fluff about the IARU and the ITU and amateur radio and all its wholesome goodness, is that 15 meters is missing from that allocation. So when did that come about? 15 meter band was created by the 1947 International Radio Conference of Atlantic City. Somebody lost a bed, I guess, or a poker. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> all right, very cool. I did not know that, and it's kind of interesting to me that... Um, 15 wasn't one of the original allocations because to this day, 15 meters remains one of my favorite amateur radio bands. If you can have a favorite amateur radio band, I guess I have a favorite amateur radio Apparently, band. No, yeah. no one else does. It's just me. I think we got it because it says here in part to compensate for the loss of the 160 meter band to amateurs by the introduction of Lauren during World War II. So we must have lost some of 160. Those Lorens, that's like a beacon setup or something like that. During anyway. the war, so they needed that spectrum for wartime propagation, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <clears throat> uh, so Loren is uh, short for long-range navigation, and it was a radio navigation system, and they did take over the 160-meter band. The Loren A used the same frequencies as the amateur 160 band. So there, it's all cleared up. All right, very good. So we're going to move on to uh, this one about American Airlines seeing UFOs. No, so, that's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it? That's the show? All right. Good, good night, no, everybody. No. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't resist on this next story. No, it's cool, though. Uh, American Airlines UFO report caught on ham radio. A ham radio operator caught what appears to be a UFO report near Nephi, Utah, or Nephi, something like that. 
while monitoring airline communications between commercial airliners and the control tower. The conversation wasn't recorded. However, UFO researchers were able to get a copy of the transmission from the FAA in response to a FOIA, which is Freedom of Information Act request. Openminds.tv, that sounds like one of those conspiracy theorist websites. Doesn't it? Is, yes, it does. And this this came from Rich, so obviously he's like hip to all the conspiracy theories. <laughs> so. I don't even know how it, it came up. I was looking around, you know, digging in trash bins and found some articles. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to play that audio? Oh, is there audio? From the link. If you go to the link, there's a, yeah. Oh, sure. What the hell? We don't waste time on this program. Let's just go ahead and play the link. Four thirty four, go ahead. What happened to all this bright Florida squares we're flying over with you? Um no, that's a good question. I'm not sure what is it off to your right side? It's like directly off our nose right now, like right below us, but we've been watching it for a while. It's like tower what is it's a perfect uh, square and it's bright orange. What town are we next to? This town right off our two o'clock well. Uh American four thirty four, that is Nephi. Uh Nephi, Utah. Okay, well, if nothing else, that video confirmed one thing. It's pronounced Nephi. Nephi. (laughs) (laughs) You know, anyway, it's like people hear whatever they want to hear. I think it was probably a off of a weather balloon or something. something. (laughs) Well, they said it was a flying object. I mean, that's what UFO means. Presumably, it wasn't like somebody spray-painted a wheat field. Oh, you don't know. It's happened before. Man, that American Airlines pilot was tripping. <laughs> yeah, dude, totally sounded like he was from California, you know. <laughs> he was he was over Utah. He could have been coming from Colorado, going up to Washington there, you know. Oh, so. that's true. That's true. <laughs> you never know. We we don't know his flight path. <laughs> and since Cheryl was complaining that she doesn't get to read any stories, guess what? Here you go. I could have read the short one about the UFO. No, you're reading this one. <laughs> Fine, whatever. Hey, give the blind person with the bad bifocals, you know, hard to play here. International Marconi Day is April 23rd. Hopefully Russ will get this out before the 23rd, but I'm doubting it. International Marconi Day celebrates the huge part Marconi played in the invention of radio. People had been trying to create wireless telegraphy for years, but Marconi improved and made it marketable and successful. And do you want to know an interesting fact? The radio operators on board the Titanic were employed by Marconi using his equipment they were able to alert the Carpathia, the ship which rescued around 700 survivors. International Marconi Day is a 24-hour amateur radio event that's held annually to celebrate the birth of Marconi on 25 April, 1874. This year, International Marconi Day will celebrate its 29th year. The event is usually held on the Saturday closest to Marconi's birthday, and in 2016 it will be held on 23rd of April. The purpose of the day is for amateur radio enthusiasts around the world to make contact with the historic Marconi sites using communication techniques similar to those used by the great man himself. And that came from nationalawarenessdays.com. And Russ actually did a Marconi Day slash Titanic sinking thing on the anniversary. What was it, the 100th anniversary? I remember that. It was like two or three years ago, and I kept saying, well, there, there's this uh, amateur radio station uh november zero november zero sierra operating out of branson at the titanic museum that was in commemoration of the sinking of the titanic and i kept saying celebration yeah (laughs) i was like (laughs) not really the word we should be using but for some reason i couldn't i couldn't think of the word commemorate but anyway if you want to check out the list of participating stations you can go to gx4crc.com slash imd dash stations that link, of course, will be in the show, in the show notes. notes. Very cool. So that's some ham yeah, stuff for the evening. Let's move on to some Linux topics. And the first one is... <laughs> right go, well, you thought you weren't participating, so here you go. <laughs> <laughs> Mumble hard, take down, ends army of spamming Linux servers. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday! <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> one year after the release of the technical analysis of the Mumble hard Linux botnet... We are pleased to report that it is no longer active. ESET, in cooperation with the cyber police of Ukraine, not Bulgaria, 
and Cis-Centrum LLC have taken down the Mumblehard botnet, stopping all its spamming activities since February 29th, 2016. ESCT is operating a sinkhole server for all known Mumblehard components. We're sharing the sinkhole data with CertBund, which is taking care of notifying the affected parties around the world through their national certs. And this is from WeLiveSecurity.com, and I'd never heard of MumbleHard, and I want to know all about it. Russ, you're the expert. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, I had never heard of this MumbleHard botnet until you posted the story, and I had never understood or never heard of anybody dealing with a huge Linux-based botnet before this. So that's kind of interesting, because I actually subscribe to, like, the cert updates and things like that mailing list wise and, and whatnot yeah and this is still news to me maybe it's just a fake story <laughs> well it I certainly doesn't so, look fake they have like screenshots and graphs and stuff that that looks all official and everything uh yeah. they actually outline the initial attack vector Ooh, yeah i love those words man initial attack vector i mean Ooh, doesn't it just sound yeah. so awesome Mumblehard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Mumblehard sinkhole unique IP address count per day is going down, down, down. <laughs> <laughs> well, they found it like a year ago, I guess, and and they're I don't anyway. I'd never heard of it. I st- again another story I stumbled across. I was looking for Bulgaria, and I found Ukraine. You you actually do like Google searches for Bulgaria just because. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I actually threw that thing in about Bulgaria because like every every time we talk about security concerns now, I'm like, wow, is this a new thing out of Bulgaria? Is this you know <clears throat> we don't have to worry about nuclear warheads from North Korea. It's the Bulgarian hackers that are like taking over the world. <laughs> oh, good grief. <laughs> It's horrible. <laughs> I hope we don't have any Bulgarian listeners. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, although the thing had, is, not uh, have, well, had. <laughs> surely they'll tell us off first and then stop listening. But I mean, R- Richard used to make it a point to piss off as many people as he could while he was on the show. So not not <laughs> you, Rich, the other Richard. Y- and you read oh, all I, the feedback, right? <laughs> don't worry, so, we've all been offended by Richard. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're not we're not intending to pick on Bulgaria necessarily. It's just that no one ever really talks about Bulgaria ever. So look at it this way: in the world where all press is good press, <laughs> even bad press, <laughs> congratulations and you're welcome, Bulgaria. <laughs> so, you probably nice. have increased tourism thanks to us. <laughs> you know there are pro- wow, actually, oh, here's some music from Bulgaria. It's the Bulgaria Hour with Russ, Cheryl, and Rich. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the theme music apparently from www.bulgariatravel.org. So there you go. And I, I'm kind of grooving to it. I like it actually. Okay. Bulgaria has a hobby radio expo. Interesting. Book a tour to Bulgaria today. Let's move on to this next thing, which I think is really interesting. And and I'm going to add to my plate of topics and projects that will never get completed based on this next story. All right. So Rich threw this in here. He called it the Linux in the Hamshack Summer of Code because lots of companies and lots of organizations do their Summer of Code thing. And he was like, gee, just put this in here if you think it's a good idea. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. So let's talk about some of the ideas that you have here, Rich, and uh, some of the things you're actually working on. Because I actually checked out your Atari 800 emulator ham radio logger <laughs> thing, and that was that was a lot of fun. I actually really enjoyed that video. So go ahead and uh, tell us all about the LHS Summer of Code. Debian has a Summer of Code, and I thought, you know, it's kind of intimidating for a guy like me to uh, get on board with those things, but but I can write a script, <laughs> or maybe I need help writing scripts. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I was thinking, well, maybe we could we could get together and do some things. And this it it kind of started with uh, with Ted, uh, as as a lot of things do, because um, he emailed me about the uh, oh the dial out group, and he said, oh okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
he's going to put a little thing in his uh, in his software. So if you're not a member, it gives you a warning. And I thought, well, that's a that's a nice a nice way to solve that problem. It's just a little box that says, hey, you're not in the dial-out group. Um, you might need to, you know, address this issue. So I thought, well, all right, how can we, you know, maybe maybe other people have ideas out there. And so I thought, well, we should, you know, we should put our ideas out there and maybe people can look at them and help out or um, contribute in any way they can. And so it all starts with uh, Git, of course, I guess. I don't know. Is Git, is Git what all the kids are using now, Russ? Git is a widely popular version control system. Subversion is also still pretty popular, but I think all the cool kids are using Git, yes. <laughs> and so I thought, well, we should... I, I was just going to do this, and then I thought, well, I don't know if GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab is better, or if there's another one that's good. So I'd actually like feedback on this. Russ, do you have an opinion? GitHub, Again, Bitbucket, or GitLab? All, all the cool kids using GitHub. All the cool kids – and look, I even put that it looks cool because you can do something with pages.github.com and actually have like fancy-looking wordpress type pages for your projects. So, okay. Well, maybe we've just decided GitHub. So here's some of my project ideas. Here's how we're going to be even cooler than GitHub. Okay. We're going to set up a Linux in the Hamshack Git repo. Nice. Perfect. This is what I <laughs> – it's actually pretty easy to set up a Git repo. I've done it myself. Um, so we can actually have our own Git server. Perfect. I love that. Oh, like at your at your compound. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll have G's work it up. <laughs> <laughs> so project ideas. I did uh, I, I did that ham OS a, a long time ago, and I got a few emails, and and one guy in particular um, from Portugal, I believe, was like, "Oh wow, it would be great if if you made something for the Raspberry Pi because he works with the Boy Scouts, and you know the kids love Raspberry Pis." And so I started writing a script that would install amateur radio software onto a Raspberry Pi using Zenity, which is. Um, easy for newer users. Zenity is basically a way to make Bash graphical. I've messed with it. You can have, you know, windows with checkboxes so you can, you know, check software to add or it's workable for for what I wanted to use it. And, you know, I got about halfway and, you know, it petered out. So I'd like to put that up there. But uh, another thing people could do is make a script for your distro of choice that will install and configure some ham radio apps for people. Uh, you know, maybe at your club or something, they want to try something, and you can say, "Well, you you install the regular, you know, Fedora, and here's a script you can run, and it'll install and configure <laughs> some, uh, you know, some stuff for you." Another thing that I'm working on, uh, I, the retro computer guys do this. Uh, oh, what, what is it called? Uh, the retro challenge, yeah. And last year, the summer, I participated. I I modified. I went into an old 73 magazine and found an Atari 800 program written in BASIC uh, for logging. And I said, well, that'd be cool if I made this for field day. So I made it field day specific. I added, I had to add a bunch of things to it. Your, what is it, class and uh, location. I'm forgetting the words now. But, um, and then I even made some pictures so you could decide if you wanted to make you know, after 25 contacts, you get the first bonus screen and uh, kind of make it kind of fun. But uh, that link's in the show notes, kd0rg.wordpress.com. It's pretty much the only thing that's there. But then I, I figured I'd like to make a script that would download, install, and configure the Atari 800 emulator for Linux. So you could just run this on your Linux machine because it's kind of hard to get the ROMs in the right folder and to rename them the right way. Uh, and, and then, you know, a, there's a configuration file involved and it's not, boy, it's just not as easy as clicking. And so I thought I'd do that. This, uh, this next thing I have actually been working on, and you might remember the Calculador de Antennas. <laughs> Calculador uh, from, de Antennas, yes. From, I do remember from a couple of shows ago. Written in Gombas, which, boy, I think Object-oriented I, basic, yes, I remember. Yes, oh, boy, I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> It's so it's so easy, but anyway, I I uh, I downloaded the source for that, and uh, I had to I had you know th there's a .rpm and a .deb file on SourceForge for that, 
and you have to download the .rpm and uh, and and take it apart to find the Gombas source, but I did, and I started translating it, and I'm probably about 75% of the way through, and of course, I'm, uh, you know, whenever you do something like this, you start saying, well, how can I change this to meters, this meters into feet, because we in America, we have tape measures that are in inches and feet, and we don't, it's hard to find a tape measure with meters, and I know we're supposed to change, but we don't want to, so <laughs> leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I actually added a button that would calculate it in feet instead of meters. And I was able to do that just by manipulating the code a little bit. You know, you, you start to look at somebody else's code and you say, oh, okay, I see what this does. I couldn't write this on my own, but I can cut and paste, which is the new program, right? That's I'm a maker because I can cut and paste <laughs> and plug in. Um, anyway, because <laughs> I was wondering if you actually hand wrote all of that Atari 800 basic code, and because um, there was a lot of stuff in there dealing with like um, memory allocation, like direct memory allocation. There were peaks and pokes and stuff in there, and I didn't I. I kind of suspected that your level of programming wasn't at that level. Oh, you said that so. Oh, <laughs> just you know, you could have said it any other way, and it would have been like daggers. But you said it very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I don't know nothing, Russ? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Not what I'm saying at all. You cl- right. clearly know how to cut and paste. So you're <laughs> <laughs> I know how to cut and paste. If uh, if you go to the first post uh, on on the um, on the blog, uh, I have the original. Uh, you know what? He it was it was about I don't know a third of of what I did, and all the hard stuff he did. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> all the memory allocation, all the peaks and pokes, all the fancy low level <laughs> stuff he did. <laughs> I just um, – all I did was uh, the easy stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I, I did the easy stuff. <laughs> I, I looked through that code because um, I wanted to see what it was like because I, I actually grew up on uh, Tandy Basic. Oh, uh, excellent. So – and it's definitely a lot different than that because um, a lot of the references to some of the low-level applications, some of the, some of the, over, the basic overlays on the assembly underneath – um, is similar. I mean, the whole the whole idea of uh, reading and writing memory allocations and stuff like that using peaks and pokes that's that's similar. But the idea of variable declaration and stuff like that is something that was uh, definitely different in the Atari than it was in the Tandy. So uh, it was kind of cool to to look through that. Very very retro and very cool. Uh, yeah, it was it was fun to do, and it it wasn't you know it's like anything. It's hard at first, and then you get you dive in and and um. And it gets easier. And this next thing uh, was kind of neat too because I, I don't know why. Well, TK and TCL come in later. Um, so I was going down this TCL TK road. <laughs> I don't know why. But I went to tkdocs.com and I'm looking at this code and I'm like, oh, here they created a little simple GUI tool that will convert a number of feet to the equivalent number of meters. And, you know, with, what, about 30 lines of code, they're able to make this box that converts feet to meters. And I thought, well, how easy would that be to make a simple antenna calculator using that little tutorial? You don't have to change too many things. You could just, if you're new to coding, you can make a simple dipole calculator. And it's, you know, you're going to have to change a few things. You're going to have to, you know figure out the syntax but that's what google's for or, or alta vista uh <laughs> alta vista wow <clears throat> welcome to the 1990s yeah but anyway if anyone <laughs> if anyone is uh always wanted to mess around with code now's your chance and there's a quick git tutorial there um there's a couple links in the show notes you can just again search for quick git tutorial there's pages and pages of them so here's my contribution to the LHS Summer of Code, which is almost, which is 99% theoretical at this point. <laughs> I want to create a basic framework for Hamlib in PHP so that you will have direct access to your rig in web-based applications. 
That would be cool. And that maybe that doesn't sound as cool as it should, <laughs> I guess. But let's say you wanted to have, you know, the equivalent of G-Rig, you know, where you have an actual front end to, to your rig control, but you wanted to do it and embed it in a web application instead of uh, a, a true, like, C application or a Linux app. So you could you could have it available to any software that could run PHP, whether it's a, a, a WAMP stack or a LAMP stack or anything like that. That is what I wanted to do. And I've wanted to do that for a long time because I wanted to create a logger that was web-based, but I wanted that logger to be able to actually access information directly from the radio. Like if you were logging field day and you wanted to have it record the fact that your radio was tuned to CW on 20 meters without having to enter that information. It would just go to the radio to find out what frequency and mode you were in, that that's what it would be able to do, plus any any other uh, capabilities um, that you could get out of your rig, basically using a serial port interface. My ultimate goal is to uh, create the basic framework and then possibly expand on it so that there is a what, what I guess would be called the PHP HamLib, which would be a web-based application framework library for HamLib that is equivalent to the application HamLib. We've got our first contestant, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and I wish I could make that sound like super awesome and sexy, but if, if you're a programmer, you know how cool that would be if it actually worked. And if you're just like sort of a novice user or a new user to the show and don't really know much about Linux or anything like that, you're like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Which is fine, you know, because we're all about everybody on the show. Leslie Kleewick in the chat room is asking about if there'd be a place for Node.js implementation of APRS on a BeagleBone and a TNC or a Raspberry Pi. Okay, I thought my topic was advanced. And now he's talking about uh, JavaScript libraries integrating with APRS on a single board computer. So maybe we shouldn't go quite that deep tonight, but we can always address it later on. I I would tell Kleewick to send me an email with that question so I can address it later. And that's that's actually what I'm doing. Kleewick, send me an email with that question so I can address it later. All right, so do we want to talk about Git a little bit or do we not want to talk about Git? Well, we can talk about Git. Git is actually reasonably straightforward is one of those things where you can use it knowing two or three commands. And if you want to go deeper than that, you can probably spend a lifetime learning it. But there are some good tutorials out there. We'll put those links in the show notes, and we probably shouldn't go too deep into Git. But basically, all you have to know to download something from a Git repo is the URL of that repo and the git clone command, because that's what does the download for you creates the source address or the source repository on your local system and then you can go ahead and do the build um, if you actually want to contribute to a to a git project um, you have to get commit access and stuff like that all of these are addressed in the basic uh, git tutorials so i think it gives you like three points of linux street cred if you know how to use it oh at least yeah mm-hmm so everybody should go out there and learn Git. Check out one of these tutorials. It'll be in the show notes. I will set up a Git server for the LHS Summer of Code, and I will publish that on the website so everyone knows where to get it. And any projects you want to post there or any projects that uh, Rich or I do will be there. And if you want to check those out or contribute to them, you know, you'll be welcome to do that. Just let us know. All right, so have we addressed that appropriately? We did. Those were our open source topics for the evening so we're going to move on to linux in the ham shack which is the name of the show so i guess this first topic is mine and uh thank you rich for throwing me under the bus and uh (laughs) (laughs) you had said that you wanted to no i I talk about this did want to talk about this because it has been really helpful in the last couple of ham fests that i've been to for doing live demonstration so what Rich has put in here for me to talk about is the use of Pulse Audio for remote audio via network, which is something I had to learn about because I knew it could do it, but I didn't know how it did it. So I, ha- I had to go look it up and figure out how it worked. And it turns out it's remarkably simple. So the, the idea behind this is that I wanted to be able to have a live demonstration at the last couple of ham fests that I went to. Uh, those being the Ors Ham Fest in Mount Vernon, Missouri, and the last one being the Green Country Ham Fest in Claremore, Oklahoma, both of which were, were a lot of fun. 
and I'm glad we got to go out there and talk to people. Uh, KD5HQN, who is one of our listeners, was at the Green Country Ham Fest. We got to talk to him for a while, so that was really cool. Uh, thanks to everybody who was there, and uh, we appreciate you all coming by and stopping by and talking to us, and I hope we uh, garnered a few more listeners out of that because it, uh, it was a lot of fun. But anyway, I've, I've always wanted to be able to do a live demonstration at our Ham Fest setups, i.e. Dayton or wherever it is we happen to be, but the idea of dragging a, an HF radio to these events and an antenna and figuring out how to set up the power, the integration, get everything working, and having a live demo was always kind of a real pain, especially in places like Dayton or in Green Country where you're in a you know shrouded in a metal building and you have to figure out how you're going to get uh, radio signals in and, and all that kind of thing. So it seemed like the real answer to be able to do this kind of thing is to do it remotely. So what I wound up doing is setting up exactly that. So I have a Kenwood TS570 Delta sitting here in my ham shack at home. I have it hooked up to a computer that's running Linux. And of course, it's running Pulse Audio. So I thought, well, surely there must be a way for me to access all of the data that's coming off the radio remotely so that I can set this up on a display at a ham fest and actually have access to my rig at home. And it turns out you can do that with very little effort. For a Debian install, you pretty much just to, just have to install the Pulse Audio Utils package, which is Pulse Audio Utils, and that gives you access to the PACTL command, which is Pulse Audio Control. Makes sense. Pulse Audio Control has lots and lots and lots of loadable modules, but in this case, the only one I was really interested in was the TCP networking module. And if you do a PACTL load module, module native protocol TCP, that actually loads that module into Pulse Audio, and it allows you to literally transmit audio from a server, from the Pulse Audio server, across the network to some client that receives it. Now, you have to have a receiving client that understands Pulse Audio, but that's really easy because, for example, FLDigi understands Pulse Audio natively. So all I had to do was issue a command on my local home server at home, tell it that I wanted to allow anonymous access to my audio stream from my radio, and then on a netbook at the HamFest, all I had to do was go into FLDigi's configuration, select Pulse Audio, and change the server string to the IP address or the domain name, or the host name rather, of the Pulse Audio server, which was the name of my server here at the house. Now, if you're behind a firewall or something like that, then you've got some extra work to do because you need to punch the audio through, or you have to create a port forward to the Pulse Audio audio port. And I actually can't remember the Pulse Audio port number off the top of my head. Rich, do you have that information handy? I don't know what Pulse Audio's port... I didn't even know Pulse Audio had a port number. It does have a port number, and that port number is 4713. That is Pulse Audio's port number. If you have a Pulse Audio server behind a firewall, you have to make sure that it is publicly accessible on port 4713. Then you have to load the module native protocol TCP module, and then... You just have to go over to your FLDigi on the remote workstation and put in the address and port number, if it's something other than 4713, for your Pulse Audio server. And then it will make a remote connection and the audio that's coming from your remote server will be transmitted across the internet to the client on port 4713 and FLDigi will be able to decode it locally on that workstation, or that netbook, in my case, or whatever remote desktop you have. And this actually worked really, really well. As long as your network connection is, you know, moderately stable, it will decode it really well. And we were able to show full PSK31 and Ready QSOs from my rig, sitting here in Mount Vernon, Missouri, on a remote netbook in Claremore, Oklahoma. And it worked like a charm. So... I know there are a lot of problems. People have, have lots of complaints about Pulse Audio, uh, but its capabilities are really rather remarkable when you when you sort of get down into it. And as an added bonus, I was actually able to use an SSH tunnel to access G-Rig, which is the GNOME rig controller, on my 
local HamShack computer on a remote system. So th- this goes to the idea of actually transporting the X Windows output of an application from one machine to another. Now, by default, this generally works. If you SSH from a client machine into a server machine and you forward the X video output of an application, it will then just display it on that remote machine. And this is really simply done. All you have to do is have SSH access to a machine that has an X server running on it, and then any X application will run on that remote server and forward the video output of that remote application to the remote machine. So um, the the text of the SSH command that I executed uh, will be in the show notes to show you how to do that. So basically what I had was I had a netbook, an Asus netbook at the Claremore uh, Green Country Ham Fest, and I had an SSH tunnel to my HamShack computer, and it was showing the output of the locally run GRIG command on that remote netbook. So I had literal rig control from my netbook in Claremore. And then I had the audio from Pulse Audio tunneled through FLDG, which was able to remotely connect to the Pulse Audio server. And it was in real time decoding PSK31 and RIDI data from my rig here in Missouri. Um, so even people who sort of don't get the Linux philosophy or even people who do get the Linux philosophy and understand that, even those people were kind of blown away by the fact that I was actually having live QSOs decoded from a machine that was 150 miles away, and I actually had physical control of that machine from 150 miles away. You know, even people who sort of get it were kind of impressed by that, and it does make for a really good display, and I'm going to have that same display set up and working at Hamvention. So I will be controlling and decoding live data communications from my rig in Missouri when I'm in Ohio. So that is going to be very cool. Um, And it's super easy to do this. Information on how to do it is going to be in the show notes, like even specific commands on how to do it. That is, uh, is pretty cool that you were able to do that with Pulse because I would have pulled my hair out. I, I have lots of troubles with Pulse. And, you know, I've tried to get it working with Jack, and I just, I always have troubles with it. Jack is a really cool idea. I, I have not really explored it. I really should, because the idea of it is wonderful, that you have a full native sound routing algorithm in Jack, and that seems like a really wonderful thing, but I kind of gather that the learning curve is pretty steep. I don't get into it uh, as much as you, so... <laughs> Like with the command line stuff and the scripts, I just want to click and it works, but it doesn't always work. So, oh, I understand. There's a GUI overlay for Jack, at least one. Oh yeah, that and that's usually the way I do it. Now I have had to do some things. There are these Pulse Audio modules that you need to like. I think you need to shut Pulse off, start Jack, then start those modules, then start. I forget. There's a way to do it, and I right. think there is a script or something that that does that. But um, anyway, uh, I just. You know, I lose patience, I guess. But um, you went above and beyond with this uh, with this remote uh, remoting of the audio. That is just cool. All I know is it worked, and I was happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just, it's just cool. So, and, and as a quick supplement to this thing about Pulse Audio, there's another thing I've done with Pulse Audio, which is kind of neat, which is to use the module loopback. And what that does is it actually takes input out audio. From your input, some from some input device, usually the default input device, and then send it to all the other output devices. And you may say, "Well, what use is that?" Well, in my case, it was useful because I would be using my computer and my radio on digital modes, like PSK31 or RIDI or something like that. And in that case, you don't actually want to hear the audio because you just want the computer to decode the audio and show you the text. But then I would want to, like, switch over to SSB, but I wouldn't want to have to, like, unplug my radio from the computer and blah, 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 because that's where the audio was being routed. And instead, I would actually want the audio to be sent to my headphones so I could actually hear SSB, you know, conversations or something like that. So you can actually set up the, the module loopback so that the audio coming in from the radio is actually sent to the headphones 
when you want to decode when you want to hear SSB transmissions, and then you can turn it off when you want to fire FLDigi back up, so that it will just decode RIDI or PSK31 or whatever. Yeah. So that that turned out to be super handy for me, and I had a problem remembering the commands in order to start and stop uh, <laughs> the module loopback. Um, so what I did was I just wrote a script that does it for me, so I could just type PA loop on or PA loop off, and it did all the crap in the back end. And that, that really worked well for me, and I actually still have that script installed on my machine, and it's, uh, you know, I guess I didn't, like, license it under, like, GPL v2 or whatever, but I guess I could. <laughs> uh, so, but, but if I'm going to actually publish that in the show notes for this episode, so if anybody wants to use that or has a reason to use that, um, it will be available to you. So there you go. Very cool. All right. Well, since I've bored everybody to death, uh, that's uh, that's me for now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you bored anybody. I, <clears throat> I don't know. Well, just uh, sending the audio natively is great. And hopefully those instructions will be included in the Debian Ham Radio Handbook project. Well, they might be, but I don't know. Let, let's find <laughs> out about the Debian Ham Radio Handbook project, shall we? Well, the Debian Ham Radio Handbook aims to be a companion guide to the Debian Ham Radio Pure Blend, which we've talked uh, quite a bit about here. It aims to document how to use amateur radio software in Debian. This book is free documentation. You can redistribute it and or modify it under the terms of the GNU GPL, as published by the Free Software Foundation, either version 2 or, at your option, any later version. They're giving you options. So Ian Learmonth states on the Debian ham radio list, quote, it's, it's in subversion. You can get commit permission. Oh, jeez. Why can't I do that? You wouldn't know. It's in subversion. You can get commit permissions by joining the Debian documentation project at HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash allioth.debian.org forward slash projects forward slash DDP. Holy cow, why did I read that? You can also submit patches on the mailing list at debian-hams at list.debian.org, and uh, I'll integrate them, unquote. This is from debian.org forward slash doc forward slash. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. I think it's a great idea. If anyone wants to contribute to that, you know where to go. The LHS show notes. I'm pretty sure that QSS TV will be in that ham radio handbook. I'm sure it probably will. And the latest version, 9.15, is now the official version of QSS TV. So there you go. Some of the featured updates and bug fixes in the new version include a file error on upload of received images to an FTP server has been fixed. Uh, the save button in SSTV receive window has also been fixed. Uh, they've decided to deprecate versions 8.2. They will no longer be maintained, so if you're running those, time to upgrade. Uh, versions 9.1, from versions 9.1 and on, the Jasper library has been replaced with OpenJPEG version 2.x because the Jasper library has been unmaintained for more than 10 years. Yeah, that's probably about time. New instructions have been included in the install manual at the request of the Debian maintainers. And you can still download version 9.0.7 if you need the Jasper library support, but there will be no more bug fixes or feature additions to this version. So probably must uh, think about moving up to 9.1.5 and future versions going forward. And this was um, reported from the horse's mouth, Johan Mays, Oscar November 4, Quebec Zulu, at users.telenet.be slash ON4QZ. So there you go. This is cool. I'm going to actually have to upgrade to QSS TV because I've been using slow scan TV of late. So I'm going to have to get the new version and see how cool it is. So let's move on. Let's all use QSS TV 915. I want to move on and I want to be safe and warm in a hunter's arms. <laughs> well, I kind of wanted to because this, this was actually interesting to me because uh, no one really knows this except me and Cheryl, and they're all going to know it now. But as of April 15th, which was just a couple of short days ago, we were supposed to go out to Oklahoma City and see ZZ Top perform live, which would have been really, really great. Well, as it happens, the night before we were supposed to see ZZ Top perform live, Dusty Hill 
decided to fall out of his tour bus and dislocate his shoulder. So they had to cancel the show we were supposed to go to. So we did not get to see ZZ Top live. However, I stumbled upon, in my searches through Jimendo, a song that reminds me quite a bit of the sort of fuzzbox guitar sound and blues rock riffs of ZZ Top. So I decided to include this into the show while I wait for them to reschedule the performance we can actually go to. So what I found was a Ukrainian band by the name of Roller Genoa, and this apparently is the B-side to their single Little Liar. And the song is called Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms. It was released in February of this year, so real new music. It's a hair over four minutes long. It, to me, is a good-time, rockin', bluesy, southern Texas-sounding song from a band from Eastern Europe. So, anyway, I'm going to go ahead and play Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms by Roller Genoa. And while you're listening to the song, think about ZZ Top.
was Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms by Roller Genoa from the Ukraine. <laughs> that was good. So did that remind you of ZZ Top at all? Because it sure did to me. Uh, it did, yes. I, I don't know if I would have come to that conclusion without you uh, preceding our minds in that direction, but maybe. <laughs> well, it kind of all depends on what ZZ Top you listen to, but you, if you listen to any of the really early stuff or the really new stuff, like from La Futura or Rio Grande Mud or anything like that, some of the stuff that may be a little less popular ZZ Top, um, you would recognize it immediately. But Okay. But I'm going to take your word for it. I, I happen to be a huge fan of ZZ Top, in, in case you didn't already know that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, we're going to move on to our announcements and feedback section. So we got this nice long email that I got from Gino Anderson, Bravo X-Ray 8 Alpha Alpha Delta. In response to our episode number 129, so that's back a little ways, but this one, uh, I've actually had this one for about a month, but it's, uh, (laughs) you know, we're trying to catch up, really, just like the rest of you are, so here's what he says. Dear Russ, I was playing episode number 129 at work while working on some old PCs and heard myself mentioned in the feedback section. That was a pleasant surprise. I had written to you way back when while attempting to locate the episode number 31 podcast. While I have faithfully listened to nearly another 100 LHS podcasts at a rate of roughly one a week and hope to eventually be caught up. Thanks for liking my call sign, Bravo X-Ray 8 Alpha Alpha Delta. I still like that call sign. It's very cool. Just a note of correction, that is a Taiwan call sign and not a Thailand call, which I'm sure that's a mistake I made. I didn't go back and listen, but I'll take your word for it. Hearing Taiwan mistaken for Thailand is something I'm accustomed to, having lived in Taiwan for 27 years, and it's a common blunder outside of Asia. And you are correct to assume that I am an American. My home state is Illinois, call sign Kilo Charlie 9, Sierra Victor Oscar, and I hope to operate from the Midwest this coming summer with a Heathkit SB-102 that my Elmer and good friend Whiskey Alpha 4 Bravo Oscar Zulu is getting ready for me. LHS has helped expand my knowledge of both amateur radio and Linux. I appreciate the way the show aims at topics that would appeal to both newbies and the experienced operator. I am grateful for the way certain software packages are introduced that are useful to the Linux user, but might not be familiar to everyone. Your mention of Scribus led me to investigate that desktop publishing software, and I've used it a few times already for things related to my work. I'm not a very good programmer, but I thought I'd share something with you. I got my start in radio as a shortwave listener, and I was accustomed to getting my international news out here via the Voice of America and BBC. Now these two stations have cut back their shortwave broadcasts in English substantially, and it's hard to get good international news summaries. I found that Voice of America has a five-minute international news summary that is updated each hour, and I like to listen to that at work when I am eating my dinner. Rather than maneuver with a browser to the link each time, I have written a short batch script that causes the file to play using the mplayer command. The trick is that the audio file's name on the VOA server changes each hour and is related to the UTC time and date. So a different file name has to be accessed by mplayer each day that I use it. It's my first batch script, and I can't say I'm proud of the style of it, but I'm proud that it works and that it was something I could do for myself with Linux to make life just a little better and make myself a little better informed of world events. Thought about using your voicemail for this, but it's a little long and I'd have to pay international long-distance rates. Maybe I'll drop you a line on the voicemail this summer from the Midwest. Thanks again for the fine show, and I hope to be caught up on current episodes soon. 7-3 from Gene, Bravo X-Ray 8, Alpha Alpha Delta, in Taitung, Taiwan. So, very cool. I'm glad we've been able to contribute to your... Linux fascination and that you actually created a functional shell script for yourself. It's it's always wonderful when you can make something work out of nothing. And he says he's from Illinois and he plans to be back in the Midwest this summer. So I hope that if he actually comes back to Illinois this summer or comes anywhere near where we are, that we might get a chance to meet up with him sometime. So that would that would be kind of cool. So forget the whole voicemail thing. Just uh, come and hang out with us. So real quick, I'm just going to go through this super quick. Our generosity campaign is still live. We are going to take whatever funds we have, and we're going to do our best to be at Hamvention. So 
we've been working with the Hamvention folks to see if they can cut us a break. Anyway, we're we're doing what we can to use the money that's been donated plus whatever money we have in our own pockets to get out to Dayton. There's nothing 100% set in stone yet, but we are really doing our best. So if we could have everybody who is able to send us a dollar or two dollars or five dollars or whatever it is you've got handy lying around, put it into the generosity campaign. Links to it will be on the webpage. They'll be in the show notes. They'll be all over the place. Just do your best uh, to help us out. And then uh, we will hopefully see everybody in Ohio uh, around the middle of the month. And I just got a scoop uh, earlier this evening on this next one, the Faux Time Podcast. I want to know about this. The Faux Time Podcast is getting a makeover. The show is hosted by Kale Nelson, Kilo 4, Charlie Delta November. Amateur Radio 360 describes how the show looks at the hobby from all directions. In addition to the new name, the new website will be the focal point for the podcast and will feature additional content from regular guests and co-hosts. The Ham Radio 360 podcast is produced every two weeks and is available in iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcast apps. And, of course, uh, this information came from Kale himself, Kale at hamradio360.com. That's Kale, C-A-L-E, by the way. All right, so we're going to move on to Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Let's talk about some pepperoni. Yes, tonight we have a recipe for pepperoni stuffed chicken breasts. And the reason why I have fixed this in the past, which has been forever since I've done it, is because Russ loves pepperoni, or anything Italian, basically. And I love to do stuffed chicken, because there's so many different ways you can do it. So, anyway, this is a really quick and easy recipe. takes about 10 minutes to prepare it, and 20 to 30 minutes in the oven. And you just need some chicken, boneless, skinless chicken breast, some pepperoni, some mozzarella cheese, uh, some cooking spray like Pam, and some Italian-style breadcrumbs. The Italian-style panko breadcrumbs are best, but just regular breadcrumbs work. Cut your chicken up in the middle and stick some stuff in there, and poof. I I do do like stuffed chicken. Uh, I don't actually remember because, or not because, but we were also talking about a mushroom or something stuffed chicken that you did not that long ago. Mm Which was also really good, so hopefully that recipe will come up soon. I can do that. Yeah. Okay. We should try something with, like, morel mushroom stuffed chicken breast. That would be really good. All right. Anyway, there's that. So, pepperoni, stuff your chicken with it, eat it. It's good. So we're down to our social media roundup. Yay. Yay, let's do this thing. This week, for our donations and subscriptions, we have Jonas Rulia, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Harrison Kyle, Scott Pettigrew, Bob Yerke, Paul Griffith, Ronald Ike, Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, John Spriggs, Robert Holliday, Ben Schram, Michael Aiello, John Clark, Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan Wilson, Stephen Sainer, Dylan Engel, Jason Marinero, Ronald Nesler, James Blocker, Doug Redder, Michael Lasky, Darren King, Petro Kartsakis, Donna Farron, and Gary Horlick. For our new Facebook uh, likes this week, we got Jeremy Bakke, and I hope that's right. We met him last weekend. Uh, Joaquin Valatoris, Doran Barzeev, Ruth Ann Jenkins, Marty Burkett, Andrew Rosenberger, and Christopher Ryan Anders. Steve Silverwood joined us on Google Plus and on Twitter. We have KP8403, Morgan261, DG834 underscore Damien, and KB6OJS. On YouTube, DarkstarPDX joined us. And on our mailing list, Larry Woodruff and Steve Silverwood. And we didn't have any merchandise sales this week. So we are down to the end of the program. So that means I have to push the button, and there's, like, music. Oh, look at that. There's music. So Bye, everyone. Well, we're not leaving just yet. (laughs) (laughs) So you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter. 
or you can leave us a voicemail at one nine zero nine LHS show. That's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. You can visit our IRC channel. It's active most of the time at Octothorpe LHS podcast on Freenode. You can subscribe to our mailing list as well. Show merchandise from coffee mugs and t-shirts can be purchased at cafepress.com slash LHS podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0200 Zulu. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please check out http colon stroke stroke lhs podcast on info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show thank you to all of our listeners live and quasi live past present and future we appreciate each and every one of you if you have just listened to the entirety of linux in the hamshack episodes number 167 i'm your host russ k5tux across from me is cheryl goodbye everyone and out there in Greeley, Colorado is Rich, KD0RG. Au revoir! Au revoir! Bon voyage! And we'll see you in a little while in a podcast listening location near you, or maybe somewhere in a Faraday cage in Bulgaria. You'll never know. Talk to you in a couple of weeks, folks. Good night.